Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Alert, brought to you by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. On this month's podcast, we spoke to John Holmes, Professor of Alcohol Policy at the University of Sheffield and Director of the Sheffield Alcohol Research Group, about Public Health Scotland's final report on the minimum unit price policy. Listen to the end of our podcast to hear from IS's Head of Research, Dr Sadie Boniface, about a new IAS study that highlights the inconsistent messaging from government regarding changes to alcohol duty over the past 15 years. First though, here is Professor Holmes discussing what the recent MUP report was and the conclusions it reached regarding the efficacy of the policy. So yeah, this is the final report from the evaluation of minimum pricing. Uh, This is the official evaluation program led by Public Health Scotland. And the main conclusion they've reached is that minimum pricing is effective, um, that it's delivered much of what it was intended to deliver by the Scottish Government. Um, and there's lots of details that underpin that. And it's it's maybe worth just going backwards and reminding ourselves why this report is so important. When minimum unit pricing was introduced in 2018, Um, It came with a sunset clause, which means that the policy will automatically expire after six years unless the Scottish Parliament votes for it to continue. And to inform that vote, uh, the legislation also said that the Scottish Government should report back to Parliament on the operation and effectiveness of a policy after five years. So that gives the Parliament one year to make a decision on whether they want to continue with a policy or not. That report by the Scottish Government will then be informed by the evaluation of a policy by Public Health Scotland. And that's that's the document we've got today. It's the evaluation report which will inform what the Scottish Government tells the Parliament and then whether the Parliament votes for the policy to continue. Now, this is a really big piece of work. It, it, it draws together 40 different studies, um, some of which have been conducted by Public Health Scotland itself, some of which they've commissioned from independent researchers, including my team at Sheffield, but various other teams as well around the country, and also some studies that have been done completely independently, but which provide useful evidence that the the Public Health Scotland team have drawn on as well. And this has been a huge piece of work that that Claire Beeston has done a great job at Public Health Scotland of leading over the last um, five or six years. Uh, So there's real praise here, and lots of people kind of recognise this as a really comprehensive piece of work that Public Health Scotland have drawn together, that they've done an excellent job of kind of marshalling all of the evidence, all of the different data sets that people could have used to inform this, and, and making sure we get the best possible picture on the widest range of possible effects of minimum unit pricing. And that's really unusual. We don't have this for other, other public health policies. Turning to what it actually found, The kind of headline finding here is that minimum pricing has reduced the harm caused by alcohol. It's led to a reduction in the deaths caused by alcohol and also in hospitalizations um, related to alcohol-related conditions. And that's largely because it's reduced sales of alcohol. Um, So there's clear evidence that minimum pricing led to a 3% reduction in alcohol sales, but these reductions um, were probably in the heaviest drinkers, Uh, and that they were particularly in the products that were sold at the cheap prices that minimum pricing affected. And I think that's that's probably the headline findings here. There's lots of other stuff going on underneath the bonnet here in terms of exactly who was affected, which particular outcomes. Was it um, acute or chronic health conditions? Was there an impact on crime, on A&E attendance? There's lots of detail here, but and that's kind of the, the result of having this really comprehensive evaluation. 
But the headline messages that we shouldn't lose sight of here is that alcohol deaths went down as a result of this policy and that sales of alcohol went down as well. And those were the main aims that the Scottish government had when we introduced minimum pricing. You mentioned that uh, you kind of point to the fact that this is an accumulation of all the evidence that has come out over the last few years. So I think a lot of people essentially sort of predicted what the report would say, apart from the sort of one key thing about whether or not Public Health Scotland would recommend that the Scottish government continues it. So what did they recommend in, in that sense? So Public Health Scotland has included some quotes along with a report and there's a quote from Dr Nick Finn, who's the Director of Public Health Science at Public Health Scotland, and that says that uh, minimum unit pricing is an effective mechanism for reducing alcohol-related harm in Scotland, and that we support the continuation of minimum unit pricing beyond April 2024. So that's fairly clear now that Public Health Scotland both think that minimum pricing has been effective and that the Scottish Parliament should vote for it to continue um, after the sunset clause. That said, Public Health Scotland does also offer some additional thoughts about what Scottish government should consider when um, legislating to continue minimum pricing beyond 2024. So they talk about the level of the minimum price. We know that the minimum price has remained at 50 pence per unit since it was introduced. And in fact, it was set at 50 pence per unit uh, originally when the legislation was passed in 2012 that was the level everyone expected to be introduced at so really we haven't increased the minimum price since it was first proposed more than 10 years ago and as inflation raises prices generally that means fewer and fewer products are being affected by minimum pricing and the policy becomes less and less effective over time so if we want the policy to keep delivering the benefits that we've seen so far the scottish government does really need to have a look at increasing the level not only thinking about whether it needs to increase it to take account of inflation since 2018, but also how it's going to keep it keep increasing it going forwards. Is it going to just do it every five years? Is it going to increase it in line with inflation every year? Is it going to do something else? Uh, I think the Scottish government really does need now to make a decision on that and have a clear policy on how it's going to uprate the minimum price in future years. Public Health Scotland also raised some questions around how to support people with alcohol dependence. One of the findings from the evaluation is that a small group of people with alcohol dependence who also have low incomes experience some financial strain as a result of a policy. They found it difficult to, to manage their money because they were trying to uh, continue to afford alcohol while still being able to afford other things such as food and heating bills and so on. Um, Public Health Scotland have, have made some recommendations around offering additional support to people with alcohol dependence to make sure that they mitigate any unintended consequences of a policy. And then finally, Public Health Scotland has recommended some more work on underage drinking. Um, it was never clear that minimum unit pricing ever would affect people who are underage, children and young people. And the evidence to date doesn't give a very clear picture of this, but suggests that really young people don't buy a lot of the alcohol that was affected by the policy. They do, they do target cheap alcohol, but unless you're buying very large amounts on a regular basis, which young people don't, you're unlikely to be substantially affected by the policy. So again, Public Health Scotland are recommending that if you want to tackle underage drinking, there might be some additional measures you need to look at. There's also an interesting point beyond the number of lives saved about how there's potentially a group of people who haven't developed an alcohol dependency because of the introduction of MUP. 
Would there be any way of modelling that and understanding what would have happened without the introduction of the policy? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenging things here is there isn't a huge amount of evidence on how alcohol pricing policies affect people with alcohol dependence. And even the work we've done at Sheffield, modelling the impact of minimum pricing and taxation policies, we really only look at the general population, which we separate into moderate drinkers, hazardous or increasing risk drinkers, and then the top 5% of the population, the harmful drinkers or or higher risk. Um, As I say, people with alcohol dependence are just a small proportion of that harmful group. And then trying to understand how people develop alcohol dependence, who might develop it, what the trends in that over time are, is even more challenging because the data just isn't really there. So I think it will be a a really good problem to look at. And and I kind of now want to go away and have a think about whether we can do it. Um, But at the moment, we don't have clear evidence. What we can say is that if you have fewer fewer people drinking heavily, and that's what the evidence from the evaluation suggests, that minimum pricing has reduced the proportion of people drinking heavily, then it is very likely that you will have fewer people developing alcohol dependence over time. So we would expect to see that, we just can't really put a number on it at this point. I also think that one of the, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit already, about these these different groups, the sort of low to moderate risk drinkers, increasing risk, higher risk, but then there's this sort of par- parallel scale um, with hazardous drinking and harmful drinking. And this, I guess, sort of conflation of terminology clearly really confuses the media. And I I kind of uh, sympathize a little bit because it it is difficult to understand and has led to just really off-piste media publications Hmm. just really getting the wrong end of the stick. In terms of the the current studies, they've been quite confident in pointing to MUP being the reason that deaths have um, reduced from alcohol when deaths have actually risen over the last couple of years in Scotland and in the rest of the UK. How can public health... Scotland be so confident that the MEP is reducing the deaths? I mean, the bottom line here is they can be confident because they've done a really well-designed, um, well-controlled, robust scientific study. The way to try and understand that is there are lots of things that affect trends in deaths in Scotland. Um, and the biggest one of those over recent years has been the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that the heaviest drinkers increase their alcohol consumption during the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that this led to a big spike in deaths in Scotland, but also in England as well. So this wasn't sort of a a problem just affecting um, Scotland. In fact, we actually know it it happened in the US as well. It happened in Germany. And I suspect as data comes out from other countries, we'll see it's quite an international phenomenon. The fact that deaths went up in Scotland over the last couple of years doesn't really tell us anything about the effectiveness of minimum unit pricing. What it does do is present a challenge because we want to strip out the effect of COVID-19 when we're trying to estimate the effect of minimum unit pricing. Public Health Scotland's analyses do that very effectively. They've used a measure of um, how intense the lockdowns were to kind of control for that impact of COVID. They've also um, used England as a control site to kind of say, well, okay, we, we know that both England and Scotland had broadly the same experience of a pandemic, um, so if we if we use data from Scot- uh, England, we can kind of take account of that in the analysis. And this is really the gold standard for evaluating policies. If we were evaluating a new drug, we could do a, a randomized control trial. 
But we can't do that with policies because you can't randomise who gets exposed to it. Everyone gets exposed to it. Everyone in Scotland was affected by minimum pricing. So instead, you look for a, a control group from another country. Uh, and England provides that control group uh, and allows us to, to take account of the other things that might explain why we see the trends in deaths we do. And after we do that, you're then left with this 13% reduction in, in deaths due to alcohol that we've seen in the Public Health Scotland report. We can't be certain that that was caused by minimum pricing, but because the, result, the study is really well designed, because they've controlled for lots of other explanations, because they've really probed it using different kinds of analyses to say, well, do we still get the same result when we do the analysis like this? We can be very confident, even if we're not certain, that it is caused by minimum pricing. So how close are we to be able to say it caused this uh, 13% reduction? Yeah, so, I mean, causality isn't a, isn't a black and white issue when we've got these kind of policy interventions, natural experiments, as we call them. It's about assessing what the evidence can actually tell us and how much confidence that gives us in, our, in our, the conclusions. So in this case, there's clear evidence there was a drop in deaths at the same time that the policy was introduced. That effect we see is in line with the expectations we had before the policy and in line with the expectations we've had given we've seen the changes in prices following minimum pricing, we've seen the changes in consumption, and we've seen evidence that it particularly affected heavier drinkers. It's also in line with the evidence from a modelling that was done before the policy was introduced. And crucially, there's a lack of alternative explanations. So it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not sure I believe this is due to minimum pricing. You've got to have another explanation. And, and Public Health Scotland try lots of different alternative ways to explain that result. They say, well, maybe it was due to something that happened at a different time point. So they try, uh, they try that and they find, well, actually... If you, if you look at a different time point, you don't see the decline in deaths. So if you go through all of those different things, we can't really find an alternative reason, an alternative way of explaining this reduction in deaths that's, that's identified in the analysis. So as I say, we can't be certain that this is due to minimum pricing, but we can be very confident because it's the most likely explanation given all of the evidence that, that's on the table. So thinking back a number of years now to uh, when Sheffield was running various modelling studies on the policy, do you, do, and does your team feel that the outcome of the policy has been um, as positive as many had hoped for um, and be maybe believed that it would be? Uh, broadly, yes. I mean, as I said before, this is a very comprehensive evaluation with 40 different studies, and that always introduces some uncertainties. But when we did our modelling, there were there were kind of some basic points that came out of that. Firstly, that prices would increase for the cheapest products. I mean, that's kind of obvious in a way, but it wasn't necessarily the case that there wouldn't be some non-compliance by retailers uh, or some ways to kind of subvert it. We've seen none of that. So prices went up as, as expected in the modelling. Um, the modelling also estimated that consumption would fall by around the F amount that, that it has fallen, around um, 3%. We expect that the result, the impact will be bigger in heavier drinkers relative to moderate drinkers, and we've seen that. There, as I say, there's some uncertainty about how high up the consumption scale that goes, whether it goes up to the very heaviest drinkers. As I say, I think the, the most robust evidence suggests it does, but nonetheless, there's some uncertainty there. So that, that's one bit where our modelling um, has a little bit of uncertainty around it. And then there was the estimate that, yes, this will lead to reductions in alcohol-related harm. And again, 
that was what uh, we've seen in the Public Health Scotland report, and that's broadly in line with our modelling. Now, actually, the impact on deaths is substantially bigger than we, we estimated from our modelling. And we shouldn't necessarily be surprised by that because we always knew our model was conservative. There's lots of assumptions built into the model which kind of underplay the effect of the policy. So we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised that in the real world, we actually get a bigger effect. That said, I think one of the questions that's still outstanding is what's caused that that much bigger effect than, than the model anticipated? Is it just that we made conservative assumptions or are there other factors in play that we haven't quite pinned down yet that might be driving it? You mentioned that 3% reduction in consumption and on BBC Scotland uh, yesterday when they were talking about the report, the presenter kept on saying that 3% is such a small amount, such a tiny amount. Is it a small amount when you're talking about population level consumption? It depends who's reduced their consumption. I mean, at a general level, it's not that small amount anyway. I mean, there are there are relatively few policies that can achieve an impact of that scale. Ultimately, we probably aren't aiming to reduce alcohol consumption by 70%. We are aiming for kind of modest reductions to, to bring consumption down to a, a level where alcohol harm isn't causing as, as big problems for the society. The other thing to say, though, is that 3% is the population average. We know the reductions in heavier drinkers were much bigger And I I can't quite remember the figures off the top of my head, but I think in the the study, which I think gives the most robust estimate of the impact on the heaviest drinkers, um, I think the the estimate is they reduce their consumption by around 10%. So you get much bigger impacts if you look in a bit of a detail about it. The other thing to say is that the aim of a policy wasn't to reduce alcohol consumption per se. It was to reduce alcohol consumption as a way of reducing the harm caused by alcohol. And because you've got that very targeted impact on the heaviest drinkers, you've also then got a much bigger impact on alcohol deaths of, as I say, 13.5%. Focusing again on the sort of the different subsets within the report, again, BBC Scotland discussed uh, the story. I said yesterday earlier, but it was uh, a couple of days ago because of when this will go out. And uh, lots of people were calling in to say that it was clearly a regressive policy and really unfair on um, less well-off people. To what extent is this accurate or inaccurate? Yeah, I mean, before I come to that, it's probably worth just saying who is affected by this policy. And the biggest impact is on those at greatest risk. So that's heavier drinkers and particularly heavier drinkers on lower incomes. All of the evidence we have suggests that moderate drinkers on low incomes aren't affected. And that's because unless you're buying large volumes of alcohol on a regular basis, it's actually quite hard to get it very cheaply. Um, You need to be buying in bulk or you need to be buying um, spirits on a regular basis. So really, this policy was only affecting heavier drinkers. And then we come back to this question, well, is it affecting people on low incomes. I mean, yes, it is. That, that, that's fairly clear. It's unsurprising if you increase the price of the cheapest alcohol, you will be affecting people on lower incomes. But as I said, only people on lower incomes who are drinking heavily. And if we want to reduce the harm caused by alcohol, we do need to affect those people. That's where the harm is. You can't reduce the harm caused by alcohol unless you target the drinking of the people who are getting harmed. Now, there are legitimate concerns about the financial well-being of people who are living in poverty, who are who are also drinking heavily. But I'm not sure we should talk about policies being regressive when what we're actually trying to do is, is improve people's health. 
it, it makes sense to talk about regressive policies when you're moving money around the economy by taxing some people more and uh, increasing benefits for other people. That That's a progressive way to go about it. Reducing benefits so you can cut taxes would be regressive. That's not what we're doing here. We're targeting a policy on a particular group of people, and then as a result, their health improves. So is that is it regressive because they're having to pay more for their alcohol, or is it progressive because you're improving their health? It, it's not really clear, and I don't think public health generally has really thought through the language we should use about these policies. I, I think we're just quite reluctant to in, engage with the idea of progressive versus regressive just because it doesn't make much sense in this context. The other thing I'd say about this is if you care about the well-being of people on low incomes, there are better things to do than, than making alcohol available cheaply. I mean, the basic suggestion would be put more money in people's pockets and let them choose what to do with it, not just say, well, we're not going to give you any more money, but you can have some cheap drink if you like. It, it, it doesn't really make sense as a way of thinking about how to improve uh, the well-being of the poorest in society. Yeah, it becomes quite a sort of a basic, basic analysis of is this fair or not? Yes, no. Answer that question. Exactly. And, and I always remember sitting at the Scottish Parliament back when they were doing the, the evidence sessions on um, for the select committee on minimum pricing. And, and a guy, Andrew Lester from the IFS, just pointing out every policy doesn't have to be progressive. The idea is that the, whole, the system as a whole is progressive. It's perfectly legitimate to have policies that target lower income groups if that's delivering some bigger goal and if your system is progressive as a whole. And as I say, if you care about the well-being of poorer people, it's okay to try and improve their health with a policy that makes something more expensive with them for them, so long as you're delivering additional support to them as well. And, it, and as I say, if, that, if that's what people want, well, campaign for the government, whether in Scotland or the UK, to deliver additional support to people on low incomes. All of this is happening at the same time as the uh, reform of alcohol duty, which comes in on the 1st of August uh, this year. And alcohol, or all alcohol, will now be taxed based on the strength of products. Is minimum unit pricing still a useful pricing measure to reduce harm when we'll have this, this newer system with duty? I mean, the first thing to say here is that minimum pricing and increases to alcohol taxation or changing the way we tax alcohol are not is not an either or alternative. You can do both. And I, I think they're both still relevant policies for a few reasons. Firstly, the, the duty reforms that the government's proposing and, and now will implement don't go as far as they could. So under these policies, cider will still be taxed at a much lower rate than beer. And that means that there will still be cheap ciders available on the market. The price of cider isn't actually going to be affected a huge amount by the, by the duty reforms. And, and that's one of the products that minimum pricing really tackled effectively. And you can see that written right through Public Health Scotland's report. Another reason is uh, minimum pricing tackles the cheapest alcohol drunk by those at the greatest risk. But tax also affects a broader range of people. Now, that's not to say we want to target... Um, increases in price on moderate drinkers, but it does impact the wider range of drinkers to a, to a much broader degree. So it impacts people who are drinking a little bit above the, the guidelines. It impacts people who, are, who have higher incomes. So we talked about this idea that minimum pricing um, targets a very select group. Well, taxation doesn't have that problem as much. It's, it's a much broader policy 
which reduces alcohol consumption right across the population uh, and, again, delivers reductions in alcohol-related harm as a result. And then finally, the third reason why taxation is important and that minimum pricing and taxation can happily sit alongside each other is that minimum pricing is a more targeted uh, and arguably a more effective policy, but all the money from minimum pricing is basically retained by retailers. Taxation, the money obviously comes back to the government and allows them to invest that in other public goods, whether that's improvements to the alcohol treatment system, improvements to the way the NHS can support people with alcohol, or just broader improvements to society as a whole. So as I say, these policies aren't necessarily um, alternatives that you can only do one of. They're complementary policies that tackle different aspects of a problem uh, and have different strengths and limitations. Combining them, you get a more effective alcohol policy structure overall. And I would argue that Scotland has actually gone even further and introduced a third price-based policy, which is restrictions on price-based promotions, sort of a ban on multi-buys. Put that together with taxation and minimum pricing, and you have a really effective infrastructure that tackles lots of different parts of the problems we see with alcohol pricing that drive harm from alcohol. I'm going to ask you to put your predicting hat on, and <laughs> lots of government UK uh, government ministers have said that they uh, are interested in MUP and are waiting to see the evaluation from Scotland. What do you think they're going to do about it? I think this is a really tricky question. I think there is a lot of support in Parliament for minimum pricing, particularly on the backbenchers. I think there are a lot of people who understand the value of minimum pricing and see that it could be effective on the front benches of both parties, both major parties. But I think there are challenges. Um, it's had a difficult journey politically in the past. We know that David Cameron's government planned to introduce it and then faced a barrage of, of negative commentary from the alcohol industry and from some members of her own party. We know Gordon Brown looked at it before that and, and backed down from, in, from proposing it. Uh, and we know that Labour, since the Cameron era, has, has sort of made positive-ish noises about it without ever actually really saying we might do this and, and at times making negative noises because they're scared of the reaction to the positive noises. So I think the message that comes from all that is we should be cautious about how optimistic we are about action on minimum pricing in the UK Parliament anytime soon. What I think is important is that there is very little room for arguing now that minimum pricing hasn't worked in Scotland. So the line that we're just going to keep monitoring what happens in Scotland doesn't doesn't really hold now. And at some point, um, whether it's before the election or after the election, if we're expecting an election next year, the government is going to have to have a, a clearer line on what it thinks about minimum pricing. So I think there is a space still for, for people who do think that the UK should adopt it across the whole country to make those arguments and to persuade ministers that actually the evidence is there now you, you really do need to make a judgment on this. And as I say, the evidence suggests this is effective, it's well-targeted, it's delivering benefits in Scotland. The real question is, does England want to come into line with the rest of Great Britain and increasingly other countries that are interested in the policy around the world uh, and, and have those benefits in, in this country as well? Now to Dr Boniface to discuss IAS's recent report. Many of us are familiar with UK alcohol duty rates being generally reviewed annually, with decisions on alcohol duty being announced at each budget by the Chancellor. 
Now, when these decisions are communicated, there's always been messaging around the positives of these decisions. For example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, cutting alcohol duties was said to help pubs bounce back when they reopened. Another more infamous example from several years ago was about how cutting alcohol duties was said to help hardworking people do more of the things that they enjoy. So we know kind of anecdotally from examples like this that there's been a range of messaging in recent years and the aim of the research that we've just published was to analyse how successive governments and successive chancellors have communicated decisions on alcohol duty from 2008 to present. So what did we find? Well, in our analysis of over 100 government documents, there was a wide variety of messaging used by governments in communicating their decisions on alcohol duty. And we grouped these into six overarching themes. One example theme that we identified was that the purpose of alcohol duty decisions was often around supporting industry and businesses, and particularly this idea of a sort of great British pub. So when there have been duty cuts and freezes, but also duty reform, uh, these have been said to benefit the on-trade, especially pubs. And these businesses have been usually characterised as being small, so they're often described as local or community pubs. A second theme that we identified was around improving health and alcohol harm. Now, while we identified this theme, it's important to know that this was much less prominent than some of the others that we identified. And it was mainly around duty reform that health and alcohol harm was talked about. The only other way it was talked about was around targeting certain problem products. And that was usually high strength beers and ciders. So really, this lack of prominence of health objectives of alcohol duty is quite a contrast to how tobacco duty is talked about much more openly as a health measure, despite, of course, the links between prices and harm being pretty similar for both products. So there's a lot more detail in the report, much more on the different themes we identified, as well as nice examples of quotes from the Chancellor, uh, and also some tweets with pictures of politicians pulling pints in our new IAS report. But overall, these mixed and sometimes conflicting objectives of alcohol duty decisions suggest that there's room for improvement in how these decisions are made and communicated. The new alcohol duty system coming in August this year is an opportunity for improving consistency and meeting stated public health goals. For example, we recommend a change to how alcohol duties are uprated through introducing an automatic uprating mechanism. This would make revenue from alcohol duty much more predictable, but it would also make sure that duty rates keep pace with inflation so that they're not eroded over time, meaning that public health goals can be better met. That is all for this month. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us in next month's podcast.